Welcome to Teleforum, a podcast of the Federal Society's practice groups. I'm Dean Reuter, Vice President, General Counsel, and Director of Practice Groups at the Federal Society. For exclusive access to live recordings of practice group Teleforum calls, become a Federal Society member today at fedsoc.org. Welcome to the Federal Society's webinar call. Today, August 16, 2022, we discuss the question, do Russian oligarchs retain property rights in the West? My name is Kayla Kleist, and I'm an Assistant Director of Practice Groups here at the Federal Society. As always, please note that all expressions of opinion are those of the experts on today's call, as the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. Today, we are fortunate to have with us as our moderator, Jeremy Rodkin, who is a professor of at Scalia Law and has written on international law topics in various forums and serves on the FedSOC International Law Practice Group. Thank you all for being here. One last note, throughout the panel, if you have any questions, please submit them through the question and answer feature so that our speakers will have access to them when we get to that portion of the webinar. With that, thank you for being with us today. Professor Rabkin, the floor is yours. Thank you. So we have two people here who have really quite a lot of relevant uh, expertise. Um, we're going to start with uh, Paul Stevens. Actually, I'll introduce them both, but let me start by introducing Paul Stevens. He's uh, been a professor at UVA Law School for a long time. He was a counselor to the State Department's legal advisor uh, during the Bush administration uh, and counsel to the uh, Department of Defense General Counsel more recently, actually, the beginning of the Biden administration or the end of Trump and the beginning of Biden. Um, and I think perhaps most relevant, um, he is a coordinating reporter for the American Law Institute's restatement uh, that's now the fourth of foreign relations law. So he knows a lot about the relevant law. Let me just briefly say, um, we also have um, Ronald Cass, who was for a long time Dean of the Boston University Law School. Uh, he was a vice chairman of the U.S. International Trade Commission, which uh, looks at complaints about uh, unfair treatment of um, imports and, well, I guess imports, um, and um, U.S. representative to the World Bank's um, International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes panel of conciliators. So they have disputes about investors being mistreated. Uh, and he has himself been an arbitration, uh, sorry, an arbitrator in um, investment disputes and other kinds of uh, international disputes. So here are two people who have a lot of relevant uh, experience, um, not calling on either of them for legal briefs, but just a kind of overview. I think many people may wonder uh, when they see in the newspapers, as we've seen often in the last few months, um, so-and-so is a friend of Putin. His yacht was uh, in a uh, port in some place in Europe or the United States and was seized. 
Somebody actually had a yacht that was out on the, it was in international waters, and I think it was the French sent a boat to chase after it so that it could be seized. All kinds of property of Russian nationals is being seized by various governments around the world. There's even been a proposal that um, this, the assets should be used to help fund Ukrainian reconstruction. So I wanna start with uh, Paul Stephen. Uh, what's the legal basis for this kind of thing? Let's just start with, there's a statute from the 1970s. What does it authorize the United States government to do when it comes to seizing assets of people we don't like? So uh, thank you, Jeremy, for the introduction and the question. Uh, very quickly on the statute, I, I think a little bit of background might be in order. Its ancestor is the 1917 Trading with the Enemy Act, uh, which uh, gave uh, presidents uh, broad authorities to take measures against uh, enemy aliens uh, in times of war, but also sir. Yeah, these are countries that we are at war with. And in 1917, we still thought war meant we have a declaration of war passed by Congress. Right? Term of war, term of art. Uh, the disruptor of the term of art was the second President Roosevelt, who in 1933 invoked that statute to uh, uh, access its authorities uh, with respect to national emergencies. Uh, uh, this was part of the taking the U.S. off the, uh, well, not the international gold standard, but seizing all privately held gold. Uh, so the idea is that property connected to the outside world can be interfered with by the government under appropriately exigent circumstances. Uh, that authority of uh, Roosevelt's was uh, revived by the men I consider the two worst American presidents in my lifetime, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon, um, both of whom tried to kill me in Vietnam. And uh, uh, they invoke this for more general economic management purposes as part of the general pushback against executive power post-Watergate. Congress enacted the 1977 International Emergency Economic Powers Act. So that's the statute we live under with one important amendment during, uh, as in, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11, the Patriot Act amended it so that uh, the power to seize as opposed to freeze property, that's to say to vest and transfer as opposed to simply bar transactions in, uh, which exists with respect to enemy aliens still, but requires a actual declaration of war, which we haven't had any in my lifetime. I think the lifetime of everyone here. Uh, uh, but uh, as a result of 9-11, Congress said that being under armed attack counts. So uh, we were authorized to not only uh, freeze, but seize access to, uh, assets associated with Al-Qaeda as a result of the Patriot Act. So that's what we have now, a, a general power to freeze and a very specific and narrow power to seize. Just state clearly the power to um, seize is people who are involved in uh, kinetic attacks against the United States. Or against whom the United States is engaging in kinetic attacks. 
I mean, the the inspiration was uh, 9-11, but uh, actors uh, with whom we are uh, exercising force under proper legislative delegation, typically asserting our right to self-defense under the UN Charter, uh, we can seize their property too. So, and just just to be clear about this, um, the seizing is at the discretion of the executive, and the releasing is at the discretion of the executive. Is that right? Absolutely true. Yeah. Uh, th- what the legislation does is create authorities, but it does ma- not mandate their exercise. So we say to the oligarchs, um, we regard you as threatening, and that's good enough. And your yacht is here, but you won't be able to use it now. But we're not giving it to someone else. That's current law. Yes. Unless and and, and until we find ourselves in a state of armed conflict with Russia which God forbid we won't. Well, probably won't last that long, right? So we don't have to worry about the litigation. It depends on how capacious what the concept of armed conflict yes. is. Yes, and so um, just say a little bit about whether there are any constitutional limits on this. Are courts okay with um, freezing as long as you don't transfer ownership Yeah, so let me hit both the constitutional and the international law chimes, if you will. The con law, I I think it's pretty straightforward. Point one, property located in the United States is protected under the Fifth Amendment, uh, which is to say due process rights, no matter who owns it. So foreign-owned property is. Point two, uh, the courts have been quite comfortable with freezing and and I'll note there are analogous powers with respect, for example, tax enforcement against domestic citizens. So it's not that far out of step. Uh, and uh, but there are constitutional limits that still apply. And one that I think is relevant in terms of proposals that are kicking around uh, Congress right now is uh, I, I think a principle of non-retroactivity, even as to civil forfeiture. Uh, probably applies. That's debatable, but I've defended that proposition in in various venues. Um, And it's relevant because the legislative proposals that we're seeing all rely on retroactive application of rules in order to authorize the seizure as opposed to the freezing of already frozen assets. Um, And and then finally, very quickly, the international law posture. uh, On the one hand, uh, as you know, both you guys know probably better than I, international law is somewhat squishy. Uh, it, it's not as hard or as clearly enforced, or at least authoritatively enforced, as our domestic law sometimes is. Um, but I, I think we have two um, strands here. One is a general uh, protection of the rights of aliens with respect to their property, something the United States has championed for more than a century. Uh, and, 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 and that would apply to non-enemy aliens. Uh, so, uh, for example, the Russians and the oligarchs. Uh, uh, second issue is the uh, law of countermeasures, which is messier 
the concept behind countermeasures is that there are certain kinds of international law violations that a state can appropriately take in re- response to another state's international law violation. Um, it requires a prior international law violation. It requires um, a limited and proportionate response to, designed to end the other state's violations. In other words, it's not about retribution, it is about deterrence and uh, leading to a uh, peaceful outcome. Um, and and I, I think without getting into the messy details that in principle, either freezing or forfeiture might be seen as an appropriate uh, response under uh, uh, international law, as long as the state doing that stands prepared to uh, pay compensation upon the settlement of the dispute. So forfeiture is not inconsistent with international law. Some believe uh, as long as when the dispute, the international wrong is is ended, uh, compensation will be paid. I, I just want to ask you one quick question, and then we'll get Ron's reaction to this. I, I read just within the last two or three weeks, uh, I don't know if we are pursuing them, but we, we have said it's a good idea to have sanctions against Putin's mistress, girlfriend, some lady that he's been involved with who lives right. in Switzerland. Is that supposed to deter the attack on Ukraine? I mean, what's the logic of a thing like that? Well, I, we're getting into implementation now. I, I think the idea is the, uh, you know, you, you try and identify pressure points that affect decision makers. You know, under one uh, theory of the case, uh, there is a apex of power where a lot of discretionary authority exists in Russia. And any pressure point that's relevant to that person is fair game. Uh, as long as... Uh, the state applying that pressure is prepared to make reparations for its international law violation at the end of the international violation of the Russian state. Okay, Ron, a- anything in this survey that makes you nervous? Well, no, nothing in uh, Paul's survey makes me nervous. He's he done a good job of stating what the, the rules are, what the law is. I am concerned about the implementation of decisions to seize and to freeze assets of individuals who are thought to be people who are close to, related to, uh, influential on uh, a world leader that we want to uh, deter from taking certain actions. Uh, the same way I'm concerned about our use of domestic authority to freeze and seize assets in order to accomplish something that we may not be able to accomplish quite as uh, successfully by acting directly through more limited means, going to court, proving a case, uh, making uh, the uh, the uh, case that we actually ought to impose certain specific sanctions after uh, a legal proceeding. In your mind, is there a clear line between seizing the assets and detaining the owner, which after all we did in the Second World War, 
I mean, we didn't say enemy aliens, welcome to America. Try to spend your money in places where people would appreciate your business. We actually imprisoned a lot of these people, right? Although they hadn't committed a crime. Well, we also detained people who were not enemy aliens. We detained people who were U.S. citizens. We detained people who were here uh, lawfully and uh, with no uh, particular reason. But let's start with, we've already kind of moved down the slippery slope from actual enemy aliens in a declared war to people who have assets who are from a country that we're feeling uneasy about, although we're not in a declared war with them. And I just want to know, can we can we move down from seizing their assets, or freezing their assets, to um, detaining them, which is a polite, I think, counterpart to um, freezing. We're just going to detain them, not imprison them, but they will be detained in a particular place. Is that something you think is imaginable? Well, I, I don't think that is the the likeliest uh, outcome of the actions that we're seeing right now. I don't think that a, a step toward detaining individuals is the likely outcome. But I, I do think that taking assets, even if it's only on a temporary basis, um, can have a profound effect on people's lives. Um, I'm not worried about anyone taking my yacht. But um, I I know that if you have assets that you are using, want to use, have importance to you, and after all, the the steps we're talking about have no meaning unless the assets have some importance to the people involved. If they are important to you, uh, usually you would prefer to live in a system where there are clear rules and a, a process that includes a hearing on why the assets are being treated this way um, and what you have done wrong to uh, to trigger them. Now, I mean, I, I understand that law enforcement is important, uh, and that's true with both uh, domestic law and the, as uh, Paul said, squishier form of law that usually prevails in international law, and that some flexibility is important to law enforcement. But I would very much prefer that we lived in a system where if we are going to take assets, uh, whether for a a relatively limited period or a relatively long period or permanently, that we do it through a process that has someone other than the prosecutor involved in making that determination. I want to ask you one other question um, just on this sort of introductory round here. Um, Do you think we have crossed an important line in going from denying, let's loosely call them enemies, but anyway, countries that we're in some kind of confrontational relationship with uh, denying assets which could be valuable to their military operations or to their foreign policy on the one hand, and just pinching people who we think uh, might squawk and that would uh, influence policymakers. I mean, isn't isn't it kind of different to seize ships as we used to do in in old fashioned wars? Because 
the ships could be used by them and now they'll be used by us and going after the girlfriend in Switzerland. This is really akin to hostage taking. This is, uh, and, and again, there is a, a long history in international relations of people offering hostages or taking hostages. Uh, it, it used to be at times a bilateral agreement uh, in order to each side would have a hostage to facilitate or encourage better behavior. But when you take one uh, without agreement, I think you are in a different position and you're doing something very different than um, limiting the availability of particular assets. So I'm going to ask you and then I'll go back to Paul. Um, do you think there are there's any real record that shows that these kind of tactics are effective. They don't seem to be deterring Putin very much. Well, to, to, I, I don't know uh, Putin personally. Um, my guess is that in order to deter him, you would have to uh, put at risk something he cares about. And I'm not sure how much any of these individuals uh, would count on that score. <laughs> Paul, you know a lot about the history of um, international relations. Can you point to an example where this kind of tactic has been effective? Uh, examples exist, but they're far and few between. Uh, the folks at the International Economic Institute, the Peterson Institute, have done a lot of empirical research on sanctions, and they've tried to tease out the factors where they're more likely to uh, succeed. Uh, I think that uh, at least for us law and economics folks, it's, uh, it's not surprising to learn that when you have bright line rules and you have a very broad coalition enforcing them, uh, the sanctions can work. Uh, and on the other hand, when you have a single state, say U.S. and Cuba, uh, uh, it, it doesn't work very well. Uh, the current environment we're in with respect to Russia uh, is uh, a uh, Countries controlling, uh, I, I did the math, uh, I think it's 67% of the 2020 GDP have uh, joined in in some sanctions regime or other, although there's huge variation uh, among those countries. Countries that control 57% uh, of the world's population uh, are on the other side of this. Uh, you know, it's not only Russia, it's India, uh, China. Uh, South Africa, um, so that, uh, you know, the rich world has taken its stand against the South on this issue. And, uh, you know, the, particularly as long as China's in the game, India's in the game, I think uh, Russia has, uh, the Saudis are in the game, uh, The Russia, Russia has some powerful friends. Yeah, but now we're talking about a whole range of sanctions, a lot of which are trade sanctions. Yeah, I'm talking about economic sanctions generally. Yes, but I want to focus on this category of taking stuff that belongs to nationals of the targeted country. Do we have experience saying like, oh, yeah, that works? Well, you know, a story uh, that, uh, you know, you can tell is that uh, the resolution such as it was of uh, pieces of the dispute between the United States and Iran uh, was helped by the fact that the Shah had roughly $4 billion worth of property that belonged to Iran, whoever Iran was, within our jurisdiction. 
And we got a settlement. Uh, it didn't stop us from being deadly enemies, but we did get a settlement uh, that led to uh, the U.S. Iranian Claims Tribunal, with, Tribunal, which, if nothing else, provided a lot of employment for U.S. lawyers. So we're for that. Uh, and and uh, and got the hostages back. We're, we're certainly for that. Uh, although part of the deal was cutting off any uh, reparations to the hostages. Uh, and and uh, so, yeah, sometimes uh, when you have most of the world on your side, as we did with respect to the embassy seizure in Iran, and you've got real assets that uh, unambiguously belong to some official authority, uh, it, it's an effective response. Yes, although... In the case of the Iran tribunal, these were assets claimed by the Iranian government, right? Not private Iranians who happen to have sold a lot of rugs and built a really nice house in Los Angeles. I think the initial wave of the sanctions was uh, certainly the legislative authority is all you need is a foreign citizen owning the property. Ah. And, and then uh, it's up to the administration to provide licenses. Yeah, so, I'm uh, just saying. I mean, what was the what was the thing that really exerted leverage on the new government, the Islamic Republic? Presumably, it was their eagerness to get back their own property. Right. No yeah. question about it. Yeah. Okay. So I want to move on to a, a different side of this, which is um, effective or not. You might think, give it a try. Uh, other things are more costly to us. I mean, we don't want to send troops to Ukraine. We're a little nervous about even the kind of weapons that we're supplying there. Um, I, I want to just raise whether there isn't a cost to uh, this kind of venture, the economic sanctions that go after assets of private citizens in that we are we are in effect preparing an excuse for any country that wants to seize American assets in the future. And we say, no, you can't do that. This is private property. And they say, no, but we're in a confrontation with you because you sided with some other country that we are having a conflict with. And so we have to grab this stuff that is here in Latin America, Africa, Asia. Uh, let me go to Ron because Ron has the most experience with this. Uh, are you nervous that this is going to undermine the good work that the International Center for the Settlement of Investment Disputes has been doing in trying to stabilize expectations of the kind of protection that foreign investors can expect from host governments? I certainly worry that this is going to facilitate other people taking steps that we won't like. Now, normally uh, the countries that take these steps tend to be countries that fall in one of two categories. Either they're very large and so they feel free to throw their weight around in a way that most countries don't, or they are essentially rogue states which don't care about what the rules are and they will use any argument that is at their disposal. This simply facilitates one sort of argument uh, among people who are professional diplomats and have some at least constraints on what they, they can say. I, I'm more worried uh, about the degree to which this also facilitates the use of asset taking domestically 
and undermines the sort of procedures that we tend to use uh, domestically. And I, I think there are a lot of different pieces of this legally that are still in play and that have been moving in a direction of providing more protection against uh, taking property without some sort of more focused legal process. And, and I, would, I would certainly hope this does not uh, retard that process because I think that is it's a beneficial process to have real legal proceedings and real findings on real claims of specific law breaking before property is, is taken. Yeah, just before, I mean, we could talk about RICO uh, seizures, things like that, that happen domestically. But I, I want to ask you about what, what to make of prominent scholars like Lawrence Tribe at Harvard saying, uh, oh, forget about freezing, we should just keep the yachts. Actually, we should sell the yachts and then give that to Ukrainian relief. And people like uh, Paul Stevens said, no, wait, it's private property. You can't do that. And the answer was they're international outlaws. Like the, the, the oligarchs are outlaws. I mean, they're friends of Putin. Um, are you worried about that, that kind of slide, which people are sort of comfortable? Some people are um, just sort of dragging us into a world in which um, governments feel free to do things that make people feel good. Well, this, property owned by foreigners. I, I'm certainly a fan of having a rule of law where you have uh, real rules that are really obeyed, uh, made by real lawmakers. Um, when you say, as, as, uh, as you point out, some academics have, that this is a good idea because it lets us do what we want to do against somebody we really don't like. Yeah. I think that opens up a real can of worms. It's always easy to get public support for doing something against people we currently don't like. Uh, and people who are outside the country doing things that we object to, and I think we object to for good reason in this case, um, are certainly not a group that's going to have a lot of public support, a lot of public empathy. The people who may or may not have done anything wrong, but are somehow related to people who certainly seem to be doing something wrong, um, are easy targets right now. But we also haven't had any formal process uh, that assesses the legality of what Putin is doing. Now, I think what he's doing is illegal. I think it's unfortunate for a lot of reasons. And I think a more muscular rather than less muscular response to that is a good thing. None of that, however, gets me to embrace um, freezing or claiming other people's property, much less claiming it and then pretending to give the assets over to somebody else almost invariably when we have pretended that's what we're doing, we're giving assets from taxpayers, somebody else under the pretense that it really won't come from taxpayers at all. And I think that that helps the government sell what it's doing. And if 
if taxpayers have a very and voters have a very short memory, it may be an effective political tactic. I, I don't think it is commendable from a rule of law standpoint. Could you say, I'm not asking you to divulge that confidence, but people who are um, arbitrators in investment disputes, maybe they meet at, uh, I don't know, Davos conferences. Um, would you say, and this has now been going on for quite a few months, would you say in that community of people involved in with exit at the World Bank, is there anxiety about this or do they think, oh, no, that's really a separate category. It's all about this unique event, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I think there's much more anxiety about a lot of the rules that are being written in terms of trade relationships and international relationships. than there is about this particular episode. And, and that in part is because a lot of the people in that community that you describe are on the same side of this particular uh, dispute. Uh, but there is always concern that there be rules that we can follow and the international arbitration and conciliation uh, community is very much uh, concerned about that. I, I think that the people who are in the foreign policy community and in the military community may have a, a little bit broader a mandate and, and a much uh, a broader set of chips that they are trying to sort out here. The, the question that was asked um, in the advertisement for this discussion was whether this was really going to be um, a, a, a form of rough justice or something that was a dangerous precedent. And my short answer is yes. I, I think it is both. Yes. Um, Paul, are you able to see the, the questions posed? Uh, there is a question. Uh, about privateers. This is about... Uh, the law of, um, is this really about privateers or is it about condemnation? Uh, so yeah. I just, I, I it's want- really about both, you know, it's, uh, yeah. Let's just start with, um, the, the constitution does seem to authorize Congress issuing letters of mark separately from declaring war. And we indeed did pursue a naval war with France that wasn't a declared war, but involved letters of mark. So there's historic precedent for attacking enemy commerce. Do you want to say anything about how this is, is like, not like that practice of attacking commerce on the seas? With most of which was, of course, pr private cargoes. Sure. Um, so, uh, I mean, we shouldn't overlook, by the way, that, uh, in that era, naval state, naval operations were themselves financed that way. You know, that, uh, the United States during the revolution was at a distinct disadvantage because we had not yet created a power, uh, a law of capture that rewarded our sailors. And once we did, uh, we had a more effective, uh, naval force. Uh, so, um, I, uh, I like, 
I don't do con law. I think it's abomination. Uh, I think uh, any body of law that that puts the gang of nine at the center is a misadventure. Uh, so apologies to those of you who feel differently. But uh, were I to think in these terms, I would say that uh, the category that I think is meaningful is armed conflict versus non-armed conflict, even though the template up until 1945 was quite different. It was declared war versus non-declared war. So uh, our conflict with uh, France was, yes, not declared, but it was an armed conflict and I would pigeonhole it that way. I think it's a useful way of thinking about it. And I do that in order to bracket off these kinds of, of measures, uh, the law of capture, the law of mark and reprisal, from the kind of pressures that we're doing in order to avoid armed conflict. Yes, this is really where I was going with this. I mean, even if you say it doesn't have to be war, it's enough that it's an armed conflict, it has to be an armed conflict in which we are a participant, Participant, right? Right. I mean, the, the, the context here is we, we are cheerleaders from the sidelines. And adamant about it, doing everything we can not to be seen as a party to the conflict along a a number of dimensions. Um, You know, so let me just throw in here a a complexity uh, which informs our dealings with Russia. Uh, It informs our dealings with China as well, although happily, we've not yet, the rubber has not yet hit the road in that particular uh, conflict. Uh, And that is the lack of transparency transparency in the boundary between the public and the private. I mean, so there are parts of the world where we can say that is state property, that is private property. Uh, It's harder, not impossible, but harder to find that boundary with respect to uh, Russia and China, um, a few other places. And, and, uh, you know, I think that the system we have, which relies on the good judgment and discretion of the executive, uh, through its licensing power is the best way to deal with that problem. So that you have a categorical authority bestowed by Congress, and then you also have a licensing power to try and draw that line. And and then your beef becomes not with the mechanism as such, but how it's being handled by this particular executive branch. Could you just, just spell out how the licensing authority would work? Well, for example, uh, you can get uh, both uh, categorical licenses. Uh, you, in spite of the sanctions, lawyers can get paid from Russians under the current regime. Ah. Uh, ah. And, and you can also apply for a transactional license saying that this ah. particular, you know, we do this with, you know, medicine and food. Uh, there, there. Yeah. You're, you're really talking about exemptions. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody asks, um, is it reasonable for us to claim that we're on the sidelines when we are um, the main arms supplier for one side in the Ukraine conflict? Yeah, well, that's a different issue, it seems to me. Uh, it's not an economic sanction issue. Well, it's just it's a question. I mean, is it is there any longer a boundary between being a participant and being a, let's say, investor in the conflict? Well, we have you know spent the entire post-war period trying to find a line between 
proxy conflicts and outright conflicts. And, and, and uh, uh, you know, that lives on today. And, and to be fair, it was also true in the immediate pre-war period, at least for us, when the Roosevelt administration coined this completely new term, non-belligerent. Uh, from uh, May 1940 on. Right. We we didn't really want to be neutral, but we didn't want to be a belligerent. So we positioned ourselves as we can supply arms, but don't attack us because we're not really fighting back. Yes. Well, it wasn't really don't attack us. It was really um, placating a part of the domestic political constituency here because uh, actually becoming involved directly in the war was yes. not uh, was not popular until yes. we were attacking. But it's just like a reminder: this is this is not really about the Cold War. This is about the whole war. awkward being a powerful nation and wanting to do things but not really commit to them. Right? That's and let's go back to the Lusitania. Right? I mean, uh, we were not at war with Germany when they sank the Lusitania, but we were providing aid and comfort to Germany's enemy, and Germany thought that was an appropriate ground for. Uh, yes. Attacking supplies to uh, their adversaries. Yes. So this and, is and I, I think that that illustrates the the more you go away from clear, direct, and sanctioned armed conflict to various forms of less direct conflict, the more you get these fuzzy boundaries. And I think what we're doing today simply increases the degree of fuzz around yeah. it. I, I should. And, and, I, I should, before I, I hand off to, to Paul, um, uh, say a word in favor of judicial decision making uh, yeah. in the United States, uh, because I, I am uh, not only as a uh, a sometime teacher of constitutional law, I, I am more sanguine about that than I may be always about the good judgment of executive decision making. And we can we can have that conversation at greater length later, but I, I didn't want to let that slide. I, I wonder um, if either of you has a sense of how well coordinated our policies are, at least with um, Western Europe and other um, other advanced uh, Western countries. Um, you mean on the, the sanctions and well and on the question of when you can freeze uh, whether you can move from freezing to seizing um because of course um ap apart from the effect on russia or whatever the target country is there's just a question of um can you maintain what you want to have as the normal standards if different countries are quarreling about what this is. The, 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 the question about privateering asked, uh, you know, we're gonna have something like a prize court. And my understanding of the point of the prize court was to establish this is now who owns this ship that's been seized. And this ship could then sail away and go into different ports and everyone would accept, yes, it belongs to the country that seized it. We accept that. Maybe we will have difficulty getting everyone on the same page about transfer of ownership, what could involve ships, actually yachts, um, if there's disagreement between different uh, countries. Is that a thing to worry about? Well, of course it is. But right now, it looks like a lot of 
the Western world, um, in, including Australia and Canada, as well as, as uh, most of Western Europe and the United States, is on the same page with regard to this conflict. Um, that doesn't mean that the rest of the world would be. Is it, is it really um, pedantic to, to separate the question of um, asset seizure from how you feel about the Russian invasion of Ukraine? I mean, you can think it's terrible that Russia is committing aggression, which I think almost everyone in the West does think, and still be uneasy about seizing yachts. Well, I'm in in both camps. I am um, very uneasy about it and think we need to take uh, a firm action and uneasy about seizing yachts uh, that belong not to the state directly, but to uh, individuals, even if it's false. And, so, and, so and so maybe somebody who actually used to own this yacht when he was a billionaire, and now he's just down to a few millions, um, will have an action in Argentina or New Zealand or Singapore and say, the ship is here now, I want it back and ask a local court to reconsider the legality of the American action or the French action in transferring ownership. Is that like just something for a law school exam or is that a thing that could actually happen and should we worry about it? So if you're focusing on yachts, I I think one has to look at what I call the ransom of red chief problem. Um, (laughs) The truth is these yachts cost more to maintain than they're worth. And at least the two yachts that are currently uh, under U.S. government control are just bleeding us dry. And and their uh, uh, value on the secondary market, if we were right now, we have simply frozen them. Uh, if we were to seize them as Congress wishes and sell them off, we probably wouldn't cover the carrying costs, uh, uh, given that a two billion dollar yacht, once it's sold in the open market, given how expensive it is to maintain and given its providence, it's going to be deeply discounted. Uh, so, uh, you know, that's an issue right there. I, I agree that, uh, you know, uh, the, the title transfer uh, is not uh, the fact that we affect a title transfer under our law, under the proposals that are uh, before Congress now, uh, would not be binding on other countries. Uh, uh, doubtlessly, the UK's, the Australians, the Canadians, and the EU would accept our our positions. But there's a lot of the world that aren't those countries, and 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 they might take a different view. Although they wouldn't take the yachts back because they're too expensive to maintain. It's the mansions along Massachusetts Avenue that you have to worry about. Yes, you're saying that people would want them. Yeah, I think uh, so. Yes. I think the DC real estate market is hot. That's my impression. Yes. Um, what about the money that's stashed in Swiss bank accounts? I, I, I know this is this is another of your uh, research um, issues, um, anti-corruption efforts. So there's money stashed in Swiss bank accounts, but we don't know who it belongs to or how much. Can we demand that uh, Swiss banks give a full accounting of money that may belong to Russian oligarchs who we think should be sanctioned? That's like saying, can we sue? We can demand it. Uh, That's not to say it would be effective or should be. Yeah, we have a tax agreement with the Swiss. uh, But if our goal is not collecting our own taxes, but 
bringing righteous uh, retribution on on others. That agreement doesn't cover it. Um, my my friend Stuart Baker uh, has pointed out that uh, no oligarch worth his salt would have any assets in a Western bank that could be traced back to that person. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's probably true. So that that's you know that gets back to my lack of transparency point. It's just very hard to to link uh, real assets and real bank accounts to real people, much less to their dependence on the Russian state. Yes, which on the one hand may give you some, let's call them uh, ethical or constitutional qualms about are we going after the right target, but it also means that you're just not likely to be very effective because they can hide these assets, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, the, I think the conversation all along is and that if you really want to hurt the Russians, you go after the state assets, not a, after the oligarchs. Uh, there's about a 10 to one ratio in terms of value. The problem with the state assets is they're mostly in the sacrosanct category of central bank deposits. Uh, and, and there are, I think, very strong policy reasons. Uh, there's a good reason why Secretary Yellen is out there saying, no, 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 no. Uh, and and I agree with her on that. Yes, you're saying that the Bank of Russia has money in the Federal Reserve or anyway in American. Uh, New York Fed. Yes. Yeah, maybe 300 million, maybe another 200 million in other rich world central banks. Yes. OK, so we have a question here from an anonymous attendee, which I think gets to what the anxiety that a lot of people feel. Uh, we seem to be targeting private citizens based on non-appealable designation by an executive branch entity. Uh, is this the kind of thing that could be done to Americans? Not under the existing legislation necessarily, but just sort of down the road. We get comfortable with this idea that we hold your assets uh, hostage, as you said, because you need to be pressured. Or well, point one, they're not non-appealable. Uh, you, uh, you, you, uh, the person who claims to be the owner, problem with the Russians is usually the people we're after don't claim to be the owner. But, uh, um, you know, uh, the uh, TikTok, for example, uh, President Trump uh, invoked uh, the International Economic, Ec International Emergency Economic Powers Act to go after TikTok. And there were uh, reasons within the statute why that didn't work. And TikTok sued and won in U.S. courts. So, you know, it's not quite true that it's unappealable. I think the beef might be that statutes can be written so broadly that the right of appeal is useless. Uh, but there is ex post ex freezing uh uh, and, and also, it's not quite for misuse of the property, right? It seems to be. No, it's not, it's within the statutory category. No, but I mean, the statutory category here is not limited to you use the property in a way that directly harms sure. others, right? It's, so, so what the question presumes, I think, is a law that could be adopted that uh, is so broad in its coverage that review over freezing, um, you know, does not 
mean anything. Now, I have worked actually, I've actually successfully represented uh, a Miki in a case involving a terrorism seizure, freezing rather, not seizure. In all of our terrorism sanctions, uh, uh, other than a very narrow category of Iranian and Cuban cases, all, all of them are about freezing, not seizing. And, uh, you know, you can actually, it's very hard, but you can overturn a terrorist designation. Uh, and, and that affects U.S. nationals because they're the ones who want to contribute to the entity, which they claim is not a terrorist organization, it's a charity. We, we do have on the domestic side uh, some cases where the government has the authority to uh, take assets and at least hold them, if not uh, dispose of them. And while uh, I, I think that the government ought to be supported in a lot of law enforcement efforts, uh, it is not unheard of that the government makes mistakes and it's not unheard of that the government is at times uh, motivated. The people who are in charge uh, of particular decisions are motivated by something other than a pure, uh, unadulterated view of what the facts are. And we've also had cases where uh, the government has, in order to uh, facilitate putting pressure on someone or going after someone who is disliked for other reasons, uh, misbehaved. And I, I think we have to worry about all of those. Anything we do that in the short term seems to be a good idea because it gets us somewhere on a policy basis that we like. Um, it is risky if we don't do it in a way that preserves the ability of people to avoid this just because they're disliked. Yeah. And it also is within an envelope that is in a way totally under the control of, of the executive. Right. We don't have to declare war. We just say it's an emergency. And the decision about when the emergency begins and when it ends is totally in the hands of the executive. Right. And, and not only when it begins and ends, but who's involved yes. and how they're involved and what sort of involvement is enough. Yeah. Um, and, and if this can happen, take a look at the Ted Stevens case. Here you had uh, the government going after a, a sitting U.S. senator and not disclosing that one of the major uh, pieces of testimony had been massaged some, and that prior inconsistent statements were not only not turned over, when they had to be turned over under court order, they were um, amended in ways that um, eliminated much of the inconsistency. Uh, we've had prosecutions where the prosecutor had a personal relationship with a key witness that wasn't involved. We, uh, a lot of things that have happened in what is generally thought to be um, a paragon of the rule of law uh, ought to give people pause about opening the borders around it uh, significantly. Yes. I, I want to ask uh, Paul just a very kind of lawyerly question here. But, um, we're all assuming that the targets here have to be Russian oligarchs because it's Russia that committed the aggression. But is there anything in uh, the statute here, the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, that limits the, the discretion of the executive to go after 
billionaires from countries that are merely friendly to Russia, like India. Yeah, so I think if you look at the uh, International Economic uh, International Emergency Economic Powers Act, it only has to be foreign. Yeah, uh, and my uh, uh, favorite example that I have tried to use to scare Congress in its proposals is that the legislation that you have, and indeed the legislation that the administration has drafted, although I don't think their whole heart is behind it, quite honestly. Uh, but uh, you would pick up right away Gerhard Schroeder, uh, you know, if you're defining the, the people as yeah. people who have a political yes. advantages from the Putin regime, he's yeah. your poster child. Now, yeah. I personally am happy to go after Gerhard Schroeder. He's uh, but uh, there probably are other people who feel differently about that. And there's certainly other people who aren't quite as awful as Gerhard Schroeder. Yeah. The, the former German chancellor who then exactly. became a... Who immediately went to... Some believed he was working for the <laughs> Russians when he was chancellor, but he went overtly on their payroll role as soon as he stepped down as chancellor and still is... And, and, and was very involved in building that pipeline and lobbying the German government to... That's have what he was paid for. Yes, yes. That's a very, very good. So, I mean, that, I, I, I just want to nail this point, which is we're not just saying, uh, oh, it doesn't have to be a war. It's enough that it be like an American confrontation. It, it, we can just like go through the entire world and say, you're not really getting with the program. So we want to pinch you by freezing your assets. I mean, we're not going to hand them to someone else, but you are going to be denied access to them for as long as we think that that is useful. And this can be appealed on the grounds that I'm not who you say I am, but not on the grounds that it's futile, right? Basically, yes. Yeah, so this is a, like a really, really um, wide dragnet that we've put in the hands of the executive and we have no, I mean, that's a very good example. The Iranian assets uh, seem to have moved them to release the um, hostages, but it doesn't seem to have a great track record in general. It's not like it's such an effective tool. It and, and, and not only that, but uh, there are other reasons why uh, the Iranians may have been inclined at that point to release the hostages. They had uh, made their point that they had, uh, it, it's like holding the yacht. It's not costless. Yes. yes. It's one of the very few things that the world actually does agree on, which is you shouldn't interfere with our diplomats. Almost every country wants their diplomats to return home safely after they've been on assignment. And, and, and if you had different rules, you would select different diplomats. Yes, that's right. They didn't have advance warning. Yes, very good. Okay, anything else that we need to say? We're about out of time, but if uh, there's a particular joke that you wanted to tell, Ron? I, I, have, I have quite a few, but I'm holding them in reserve for when my yacht is taken. <laughs> uh, Paul, if there were one thing that you could persuade Congress to do, what would it be? Uh, I, I would uh, actually, as a small C conservative, I'm a fan of the status quo and would uh, hope that we can maintain that. Uh, the proposals that are kicking around, I think, are dangerous and I hope to be avoided. 
No, nothing about doing away with the designated hitter. <laughs> okay, good. So um, we've had at least uh, an airing of some of these issues, and I believe the Federalist Society has a way that you can uh, raise issues after we leave, right? Absolutely. Um, on behalf of Federalist Society, I want to thank our experts for the benefit of their valuable time and expertise today. I want to thank our audience for joining and participating. We welcome listener feedback by email at info at fed-soc.org. As always, keep your keep your eye on our website and your emails for announcements about upcoming virtual events. Thank you all for joining us today. We are adjourned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Teleform, a podcast of the Federalist Society's practice groups. For more information about the Federalist Society, the practice groups, and to become a Federalist Society member, please visit our website at fedsoc.org.